Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to the Epistle of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. Let's give ear to God's holy word. We'll be reading the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn back in our passage to verse 4 and following as we continue our study on these practical instructions from the Apostle James, practical instructions for overcoming worldly lusts. And we, we can see here, as we said last time, that James is a book of the Bible that is somewhat unique in terms of what we're used to, especially in the New Testament. Uh, We're used to practical instruction that is directly tied to gospel doctrine. We're used to that in the epistles of Paul and perhaps of Peter to an extent. 
But here in James' epistle, we just have numerous exhortations and declarations of biblical wisdom and God says this, the Bible says this, therefore you need to do it. It's just an ungarnished call to obedience, to repentance, to uh, spirituality of various kinds. Uh, James is directing our attention to what God requires of us. And it's not as though he's oblivious to the Gospel, but in this epistle he doesn't mention Christ's incarnation in any detail. He doesn't mention the death or resurrection of Christ. He doesn't speak directly of the love of Christ for His people or of dying for their sins. Uh, He makes reference to the compassion of the Lord toward Job, but that's about it. The rest of his epistle is devoted to what many have referred to as New Testament wisdom literature. And he's, he's bringing before us the cause and effect relationship in the Christian life between uh, our thoughts, our words, our decisions, cause and effect. How does our Christian life, how, how, does our, how do our decisions, how does our lifestyle affect the world around us? And, and he confronts the people for their lack of maturity, for hearing the Word but not doing it. He confronts them for professing faith but not producing good works. Uh, He confronts them for blessing God one moment with their lips, but then using the same lips, the same tongue, to speak words of cursing. He, He addresses their worldliness, their warring and lusting after these earthly pleasures. They're not praying for them, and even when they do, they're praying in a selfish way to spend it on their pleasures and their lusts. Meanwhile, they're laboring and planning ahead and going to great lengths to get these worldly things that they want. Uh, they're, they're, they're planning to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell. Uh, they're, they're competing with other people to the point where they may actually even be murdering other people to get what they want. So the things that they're seeking, they're seeking diligently but they're not seeking the Lord diligently. They're adulterers and adulteresses. And James calls them out. He knows that they know the Gospel. No doubt, they're hearing the Gospel every week in their pulpits, but he brings to their attention the simple fact of what God requires of them, and he holds them accountable to it. And that's a very important aspect of biblical revelation. Uh, Different books of the Bible bring to bear different aspects, but we need to hear from James from time to time. And that's what we're doing in this series. Now we go back to verse 4, where he confronts them, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He goes on to say at the end of verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he's saying, listen, you've fallen into worldliness. Many of them may be unconverted, but focusing in terms of our sermon mini-series here, focusing on how this impacts believers in the Christian life, he's exhorting these backslidden believers in the midst of their spiritual adultery to recognize that God is a jealous God. God will not tolerate playing second fiddle in your Christian life. God is God. You can only serve one master. You can't serve two. 
God will not be content to be anything but your God in every aspect of that term. And so the Spirit yearns jealously when we give our hearts, our allegiance, our association to the world, when we assimilate to the world, we commit adultery with the world. And he says we need grace to overcome that. And God gives more grace. But the problem is if we don't humble ourselves, we're not going to receive that grace. He says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now let's think of this in the Christian life. You're a believer. You have grace. You're regenerate. You have the Holy Spirit yearning jealously within you during your backsliding. You're not seeking first the kingdom. You're seeking these other things. Thorns and thistles are choking out the Word. Uh, You have grace, but in order to receive more grace to overcome the sins that are plaguing you, you need to humble yourself and ask for that grace diligently, seeking the Lord in His means of grace, especially prayer and the Word of God, And you need to draw near to Him. You need to come to Him. And James is giving you a number of practical exhortations, instructions for you to follow that are very, very simple. I mean, there's there's nothing in this list that is complicated. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. In other words, just cast sin away from you as an unclean thing, lament your sin, humble yourself. Listen, all of these things are very, very simple. And that can be a stumbling block sometimes. Sometimes in a way where like Naaman, the Syrian general who had leprosy, and he comes to Elisha to be cleansed and cured of his leprosy, and he's expecting Elisha to sort of pull out a magic wand and spin it around in the air and do something, uh, you know, like in a Disney movie. And in fact, Elisha does nothing of the sort. He commands him to go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. And for Naaman, this is just too simple. It's a stumbling block. And he, he doesn't want to follow the instructions. And until he gets some good counsel from some of his uh, fellow uh, military men, He's not going to do it. Eventually, he does go. He follows the instructions, and sure enough, he's healed. Well, the same can be true in the Christian life. That the great physician gives us instructions for overcoming the plague of our hearts, for overcoming this sickness of sin that's causing and wreaking havoc in our lives, uh, gives us instructions for turning away from our backsliding and turning to the Lord. And they're very simple. And yet, because they're so simple, we we just go around looking for the next fad in the the Christian bookstore of how we're going to improve our Christian life and have more joy in the Lord. Well, these instructions are very simple. And James brings them with urgency. He says, you're worried about next year and your next business plan and so on and so forth. But he says, listen... This is urgent. You need to take this seriously right now. Uh, If the Lord wills, you may have next year. And and you may need to make a profit and good for you. But right now, you need to be thinking about your soul as of first importance. And he says you need to take action. Last time we looked at two actions that he exhorts us to take. Humble yourself and unfriend the world. 
And these things involve action. God's sovereign grace is operative in sanctification. God is the Lord who sanctifies us, as the Bible teaches. And God alone receives the glory. And yet, in the sanctified Christian life, there is a role for our effort. Christians need to be active and urgent in their activity. 2 Corinthians 7.1 We must cleanse ourselves. 1 John 3, verse 3, we must purify ourselves. Our text itself urges us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. In other words, the way that God sovereignly gives us victory over sin is by sovereignly stirring us up through passages like this to take ownership and take action in an urgent manner and to throw all the the business plans and all these other things out for a moment and to focus on living the Christian life and defeating these sins and entanglements and hindrances in our walk with Christ. So, So he's bringing these things. He's saying, humble yourself. We saw last time how self-absorbed these professing believers were in all their focus was on their own pleasure, getting it at all costs. And we saw how James humbles them just in addressing them as you sinners, you double-minded, you're serving two masters, you're an adulteress, you're an adulterer. It, it takes humility even to sit under that type of message, to even read a passage like this and apply it to our own lives. It takes humility to recognize that we're not humble. And so he's already, in the things that he's saying, he's already paving the way for humility simply in bringing a message that only a humble person would tolerate without throwing something at the preacher or tossing the epistle of James into the fire. He he addresses the issue of focusing too much on the sins of other people. So, in one sense, they're self-absorbed, but in another sense, in terms of finding fault, all they can do is find it in other people. They're not actually examining themselves. Uh, Who are you to judge another, as he says later on? So, he urges them to humble themselves. Why? Because God resists the proud. Or as I think the King James says, God opposes the proud. So we're not going to make any headway in the Christian life if God Himself is opposing us. Uh, That's just common sense. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And my friends, if we've had any ounce of humility, we know we're not going to make progress in fighting these sins, fighting against backsliding, and living a fruitful Christian life. We're not going to be able to do that without grace. So we need to be humble. We also saw that we need to unfriend the world. We tend to associate with the world. We tend to assimilate and be conformed to the world. We want to be friends of the world. We're doing everything we can to win over the world, to be our friend. All of these things are futile and vain and adulterous, as he points out. Now, we concluded last time by saying that the way in which the Lord graciously sanctifies us from these things and enables us to follow, follow these instructions is through His Word. He sanctifies us in the truth of His Word. We looked at the high priestly prayer. How do we know that we're going to be sanctified as believers? 
Because Jesus is interceding. Jesus is our high priest. He's prayed for that. He's interceding now for that. He's guaranteeing that. That all of our sins will be forgiven every day. And that the grace we need will be present for us every single day. But the way He does that is through His Word. He has spoken His Word to us. He's preserved it in the Bible. And so, in order for us to follow these instructions, we need to cling tightly to the Word and to prayer. The prayerful use and study of the Scriptures. We saw that. Now we're going to move on here to the third thing that He calls us to do. But before we do that, let me just remind you in reference to the sermon title that the time to get serious is now. This is James giving us an opportunity to get serious in our relationship with God. Time to, to, to mature, time to wake up and grow up and get serious with God. Now you could say, well, the time to get serious was two weeks ago, and you're right, that was the time to get serious, but now we have another opportunity. It's part two, we're back in this text, we're, we're diving deeply into this list of practical instructions, and so uh, I would hope that we've addressed some of those issues, right? I've, I would hope that to some extent in the last two weeks, we've humbled ourselves, we've cut ties with the world and worldly priorities, and, and, and we've developed a renewed focus on daily time with God in the secret place in the Word and prayer as a means of our sanctification. But even if we haven't, okay, now it's time to get serious. Two weeks later, it's just as urgent, if not more. I mean, it can't keep going on forever. So let's be thankful we're here with another shot. But we need to get serious. Our third exhortation is this. Submit to God. Submit to God. And verse 7 begins with the word, therefore. And remember, verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the whole point here, he's building momentum. He's saying, we need grace to overcome our sin. And we're not going to have grace if we're too proud to ask for it in faith and seek it through the means of grace diligently. So we need to humble ourselves and come to the throne of grace, seeking help in time of need. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like the blind beggar who cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. And I think the therefore applies to all of the subsequent exhortations but it certainly applies to the first one. Therefore, submit to God. So if we're going to receive grace to overcome the sins in our lives and to grow spiritually and be fruitful and be a blessing to everyone around us in the world and in the kingdom of God, we need to submit to God. Now, what is submission? Well, we see an example of submission in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps the classic case of submission where the Lord Jesus Christ, not as the eternal Son of God, but as the God-man mediator, as the servant of the Lord, who says the Father is greater than I. He humbled Himself, made Himself of no reputation, uh, even took the form of a, a servant, a slave, 
and so on and so forth. You see that in Philippians 2. But we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus humbles Himself and the Father, as it were, presents Him with the cup of wrath and He looks into that cup and He sees what is to come. And He begins to experience that anticipation of the infinite wrath of God that He's going to experience as it's manifested in His soul and through the physical sufferings of His body, the emotional trauma of being despised and rejected and abandoned and betrayed. All of these things come before Him and He looks down into that microcosm of the lake of fire, this cup of wrath. And He, he says that if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he recognizes, he acknowledges that in his humanity, that he is not designed to desire or take delight in the wrath of God, in being forsaken by God, in enduring God's infinite anger and hatred against sin. This is something that is repulsive to his sanctified humanity in and of itself. So if it be possible to redeem my covenant people, if it be possible to do these things without experiencing that, uh, then, then let it be so. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. So there's something about what he's being called to do that he, that he naturally is not inclined to do. It's not his will in that limited sense. But he says, I'm going to put aside that and I'm going to submit to Your will, Father. I'm going to submit to Your plan and Your commandment and Your will for my life. And that's a perfect example of submission. Submitting our will to God. Jesus elsewhere describes this as denying ourselves. When He took up His cross, He denied Himself in doing so. He denied that natural human inclination to experience God's blessed presence and, and physical and spiritual and emotional well-being. He denied Himself and took up His cross. And He calls us to do the same with respect to the will of God. To say to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, to say to the entire Godhead, not my will, but your will be done. And that's what James is saying. Therefore, submit your will to God's will. And notice verse 17, he's, he's well aware that these people are familiar with many of their biblical duties. Uh, I don't think that it's uh, in any sense surprising that he concludes this chapter, and I think it is the end of the major thought here in his epistle uh, in this section. I don't think it's surprising that he ends by saying, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So he's saying, you guys know better. You actually know better. You know that what you're doing is wrong. You know that you're an adulterer, an adulteress. You know that you've been, you've been proud. You've been rebellious against God. You know you've been professing one thing and doing another thing and blessing God with your tongue and cursing others with your tongue. You know you've been doing that. Uh, and, and so now's the time to act on that knowledge. Not my will, but Your will be done. Lord, I know Your will for my life. I know what You want me to do. I'm not inclined to do that. And there are so many layers of this. 
so many layers of this struggle in the Christian life. Because at a certain point in our experience, maybe you, you could say uh, on a good day, we do want to do what God says to do, right? Uh, but there are times, especially times of temptation, which is what makes them so difficult, there are times in our lives where we're vulnerable to the flesh and we abandon that godly desire and in that moment of wrath or of lust or of greed or whatever it is, we abandon the spiritual desire and we embrace the flesh and we, we, we find it difficult even to desire to do the right thing. Uh, we're inclined to evil by our sinful nature. And in those moments, we have to deny ourselves. Not our regenerate self, not our new creation, not our new humanity in Christ, not the Holy Spirit within us, but that fleshly remaining sin that rises up in those particular moments when we've lost our better judgment and we're off the rails and we're most vulnerable at those moments specifically we need to submit to God. See, it's fine and dandy to say, well, I'm going to submit to God while I'm listening to a sermon. I've had the Sabbath day and I'm prepared for this and maybe I'm, I'm at a point in, in my experience for the week that things are good and I'm ready to listen to God's will. But what about in the crunch of temptation when all those other factors are raging around you? That's the time, especially when we need to submit to God. And we have a tendency to say, well, uh, under extraordinary circumstances, when I'm in a difficult spot, I have some leeway to sin because, you know, that's just the way it is. And, and, and so I'm going to judge my Christian life by my good days. And I'm just going to ignore the bad days. But you see, it's on the bad days when you haven't had enough sleep when your, your boss at work has been un, uncharitable towards you, when things are stressful with the finances. It's in those stressful times that we especially need more grace. Therefore, we need to especially pursue these instructions. And the first one here, uh, at least for the purposes this evening, is this. Submit to God. Because at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we ultimately have two options. Submission or self-deification. Either we submit to what God says, and He says we know what God wants us to do. He says to Him who knows to do good. There may be hidden sins or sins we commit that we're not aware of, but we're speaking of the obvious sins. We know their sins. We know what God wants us to do, and we do the other thing. In those situations, when we know God's will, we either submit to it, or we become God. Those are the only two options. Those were the options in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the serpent. Either we submit to God and hands off the fruit of the, from the forbidden tree, or we become gods and we determine good and evil for ourselves. Those are the only two options. And we can see that in the life of our Lord, we see this especially. Uh, we see Him in the wilderness of temptation. And in the wilderness of temptation, Satan comes to Him at an opportune time, at a vulnerable time, at a time in which the Lord has been without food and drink for 40 days. 
It's possible that Satan didn't merely tempt Jesus three times, but maybe those were the last three, the climax, the pinnacle. Maybe Satan had been tempting him repeatedly throughout that period, or maybe it was just at the end. Either way, Jesus physically was beleaguered. He was wasting away. He was vulnerable. And the very first thing that Satan does when he comes to him is he says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Turn these stones into bread. Now Jesus is both God and man. As man, He's hungry. And as God, He can turn the stones into bread. So right there, He could use His divine power to feed His human desires and appetites, but not in such a way which would have been at the commandment of the Father for the purpose of redeeming His people. In other words, He would have been abusing or misusing His divine power because He would have been using it for something other than His incarnate work of redemption to save His people. So Satan's tempting Him to sin. And He has the ability, not the ability to sin in the sense that He would ever have the capacity to sin, but He has the ability to do the thing in itself that He's tempted to do. He has the ability to do miracles, and He has the ability to turn stones into bread and to eat bread. We know He has the ability to do that. And so there he is in the wilderness under the worst possible circumstances other than perhaps when he's tempted to get off of the cross later. But up to this point in his life, the most vulnerable, worst possible scenario for temptation. And and Satan brings it. And, And what does Jesus do? He responds with Scripture, submitting himself to the revealed will of God. He responds from Deuteronomy. So he cites Literally, the law of God. And, and when he does that, he quotes a passage that says that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in doing so, he says, I'm going to wait for my heavenly Father to feed me. He hasn't authorized me to use my divine power for this purpose. I'm going to put my trust in God and I'm going to deny everything that's raging in my uh, perfect sinless humanity, desiring food, I'm going to submit that to Your will, Heavenly Father, and I'm going to resist the devil. Jesus submits Himself to God under the worst possible situation. Now, Jesus is God. And He submits to the Father. How much more urgent, how much more fitting is it for us? We're not God. Okay? If Jesus as the, as the God-man can submit Himself to His heavenly Father and deny the, the bodily desires and appetites that He experienced, if God Himself in the flesh will refuse to defy the revealed will of God, what excuse do you have? If Jesus, under a circumstance that's ten times worse than anything any of us have ever faced, can deny Himself, what excuse do you have? Well, you say, well, I'm not the Son of God. Yes, but you have the Son of God living inside of you. Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And you can do all things through Christ who gives you the strength. If Jesus can submit under those circumstances and He's living in you, then you can submit under any circumstances. You can deny yourself. You can deny your feelings. 
When God calls us to submit to His revealed will, He's calling us to submit our feelings. There may be something in your life that God is calling you to do or something He's calling you not to do. Something He's forbidden. And you don't feel like it. You don't feel like denying yourself that thing. You don't feel like doing what He's called you to do. Maybe He's called you again. Getting back to our hobby horse here, um, reading the Bible and praying every day. Maybe you don't feel like getting up in the morning and doing that. But you see, you need to deny those feelings, submit those feelings to the will of God. Maybe there's something in your life, an appetite, a physical appetite. Maybe food has begun to run wild in your life. Maybe there are sexual temptations. Whatever it is, there's a physical, bodily appetite or urge that is enslaving you, you need to submit that to God. If Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit and His humanity, if Jesus can overcome the temptation to turn stones into bread, you can deny that fleshly, earthly, physical appetite. You need to submit it to God. You, you, you want to say to that appetite, you're not God, I submit. I submit. Submit your fears to God. Maybe there's something God's calling you to do, but you're afraid to do it. You have to confront someone in your family, a, a child, uh, that uh, you know, maybe you're tempted to just be lenient with your children and not confront them, not discipline them. And you're fearful of how they might receive it and what might happen. And you're codependent in that sense. Uh, you, you need to submit that fear to God and confront your child. Uh, There are so many examples that we could give, but submit your fear to God. Submit your preferences to God. Submit your desires to God. Say, not my preference, not my desire, not my comfort, but Lord, Your will be done. And this is what it means to acknowledge God as God. The only alternative is to make a God of our feelings, our comforts, our preferences our fears and our desires. So submit to God. And there's a freedom that comes with submitting to God. There's a freedom that comes when I say, all right, God says I need to spend time in the Word and prayer every day. So I'm going to block out 30 minutes and I'm going to devote that time to the Lord every morning. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to spend that time. I'm going to carve out time around a particular meal for family worship with my spouse, with my children. And I'm going to take these steps and there's a lust that's run wild in my life. I'm going to go speak with an elder, get an accountability partner. I'm going to labor with help and counsel and accountability to overcome this. And I'm going to take steps to cut off my right hand and pluck out my right eye. Okay, I'm going to do these things. There's, There's a freedom in that. There's a freedom in doing what you know God wants you to do. Because at that point, in a sense, it's not, the burden's not on you anymore. You're just doing what God calls you to do in the Christian life. You just open up the inside of your Psalter and you look at some of the biblical duties that you have as a communicant member. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to humble myself. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to trust that if I believingly do what God's called me to do, then He's going to take care of my Christian life. He's going to help me grow in assurance. 
He's going to help me overcome these sins and lusts. He's going to improve my marriage and my relationship with my children and my family as a whole. He's going to take care of these things because I'm just going to submit to what He says to do. And I don't have to bear that burden myself. And I don't need to go out and buy all these fancy books or the Christian self-help section at the bookstore or Amazon or whatever. I don't need to do that. Just submit to God. Just submit. Just do what I know He's called me to do. There may be many things that I'm supposed to do that, that I'm not aware of. Okay, but let me just start with what I know to do already. Uh, in some sense, I think as individuals, even in the church today, we would all be better off if we said, yes, I want to learn more, but how about I start with everything I already know I'm supposed to be doing. You know, you can go out there and read 50 Puritan books and learn all of these new things, but if you're not doing the things you already know, what's the point? Because you're just going to learn more and more things that you're not doing. So, it's very important just submit to God in the areas that you know what He wants you to do. Just submit. Just do it. Now next he says, resist the devil. Resist the devil. I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a devil. It can be so easy for us to be seeking to live the Christian life and we're thinking about God and we're thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit, we're thinking about the Word of God, uh, we're thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and the church and the, the culture wars and all of the different dynamics. We're, we're thinking about all of these things, the law of God and the commandments that we ought to be following. But oftentimes, I think, in the Reformed world today, we forget about the devil. We forget that there's even a devil that we need to resist and oppose And there is a devil. And when we speak of the devil, we're not just speaking of the devil as an individual fallen angel, but we're we're speaking of all of his hosts of wickedness. All of the fallen angels that are at his beck and call. He's the prince of the power of the air. The prince of devils. And so we're speaking not just of the devil, but it's unlikely that the devil is going to take the time to tempt any of us. But the forces, the legions of Satan are the ones who do His bidding. And so that's what it means. Resist the devil. Resist demonic influence. Because demonic influence is present. And the question is, is that demonic influence on your radar? Are you aware of it? Do you recognize, as I've said before, Christianity is not like golf where you're just you know, hitting, hitting the ball and, uh, and, and walking after it and there's nobody really there against you to oppose you. You're just trying to get a better and better score. But it's more like football where you know they, they hike the ball to you and now there's a bunch of very large men trying to shove your helmet into the mud. Okay, There's somebody out to tackle you. There's someone out to get you. This is a war. This is a conflict. It's not a walk in the park. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us that we can very easily fall prey to the idea, even when we think of the conflict, of thinking that it's a conflict against flesh and blood, primarily. Now, Satan has his offspring, the seed of the serpent. We see that throughout society. But fundamentally, Ephesians 6 verse 10 tells us that we do not wrestle against, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness 
in the heavenly places. Now, that should humble us. Because, listen to the language used of of these demonic powers. Principalities. Powers. Rulers of the darkness of this age. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are powerful beings. Jesus has died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven. Paul's writing this after all those things have happened. And he's saying, even now, Satan and his legions are very powerful. They haven't lost their ability to influence the world or to tempt you or to trip you up. And so the reality is this is a factor. It has to be a factor. When you recognize that you're backsliding, understand it's not just your remaining sin. Very likely there are satanic uh, uh, influences in play. And so we need to take stock of this. We need to take up the whole armor of God. We need to be ready. We need to resist the devil. Okay, Not saying we should be like Luther and throw ink pens at the devil in the corner of the room. But, you know, Jesus recognized the work of Satan in his life. Jesus, in Matthew 16, when Peter says, Lord, uh, it, it's, not, it's not something that, that you ought to do in going to the cross. Jesus pulls, uh, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And, and Jesus is trying to tell Peter about the cross. Peter says, Lord, it shall not be so unto you. And Jesus at that moment identifies the satanic temptation that even someone as, as godly as Peter is bringing into the equation at that point. Get thee behind me, Satan. Be aware that Satan is active. Be aware that Satan uses godly people like Peter. Uh, all the more uses ungodly people in your life to tempt you. He uses and orchestrates the world with all of its media and advertisements. He has a whole armory. And he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world if you're drawing near to God and utilizing and cultivating that power. If you're not giving place to the devil and grieving the spirit and driving him away with your worldliness and your pride. If you're humbling yourself and submitting to God and recognizing the devil's influence and being vigilant to fight against it, God will fight for you and in you and through you and you will be victorious. As Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, if you're focusing your entire life on prioritizing money and worldly pleasures and your own feelings and preferences and desires, you're not going to have the power of God flowing through you. If you're not in the Word and prayer substantially on a daily basis, you're not going to have that power flowing through you. And so you're going to be like Samson. You're going to get up to defeat the Philistines and they're going to pluck your eyes out. And so you need to be equipped and armed to resist the devil. You need to be aware of his agenda, his devices, his goals, his efforts to trip you up. But the beauty of it is that if you follow these instructions, there's nothing Satan can do to hinder your growth in grace. Ephesians 4 tells us for Satan to get to gain ground in our lives, we have to give it to him. He says, Paul says, give do not give place to the devil. Do not give place to the devil. 
Satan cannot ultimately enslave a believer. If you have the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of you, understand Satan is a defeated foe. He's been crushed underfoot. The power of God always trumps the power of Satan. Every single time. If you're losing that battle, it's because you're not walking in a cultivated sense of the power of God. You're not by faith clinging to Christ. And you're not humbling yourself and in weakness becoming strong in Him. Uh, This is what's important here. Resist the devil. And finally, we'll we'll have one more sermon after this um, on, on a couple other points. But let me close with this point. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. And we've already really been moving in this direction. You're not going to resist Satan if you're not walking closely with God. If the power of God is not flowing through you, you are not going to be able to resist the devil. And here you see the the beautiful uh, balance between the negative and the positive. Resist the devil. Okay? Unfriend the world, okay, but draw near to God. If you try to unfriend the world and resist the devil without drawing near to God, you're going to fail miserably. If you try to defeat the Philistines in your own strength, if you try to, to unfriend the world and put away the world without embracing God, without drawing near to God, then you're going to fail miserably. Uh, the, the solution to adultery, in one sense, is the marriage bed. The solution to their adultery, these adulterers and adulteresses, the worldliness, the, the satanic influence, the solution is to draw near unto God. And we do that not in an airy-fairy way, walking through the woods, sitting on a log. We do that primarily through the means of grace. This is how we draw near to God. I'm not saying that you can't have a deep spiritual experience sitting on the log. I hope we all have that. I've had that. But fundamentally, it's through the means of grace. And I would argue that in one sense, if you're sitting on the log meditating on Scripture, well, that's in a sense a means of grace anyway. But it's through the means of grace. That's the primary means in public, in family, and in private. The Word of God is not just words on a page. Jesus says, my words are spirit and they are life. Your spiritual life is contained in this book as it is applied to your soul by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Word of God is. If you're not drawing near to the Scriptures, you're not drawing near to God. And you can draw near to the public means of grace time and time again, Sabbath by Sabbath, till you're blue in the face. But Jesus says in Matthew 15 that if you're not drawing near in your heart, if you're not drawing near in in your inner being, if you're just professing many things, if you're speaking and, and singing the praises of God, but you're not drawing near with a heart of faith, then He says your religion is worthless. Uh, We don't want to draw near with with our lips, but our heart is far from the Lord. We use the means of grace from the heart. And so we come to church expecting to hear from God. 
expecting to find something in the singing of God's Word, something in the Psalms that's, that's going to catch our attention. Or if not, it's simply going to fill our minds with the truth of God in ways that we're not even aware of and it will guide us and sanctify us in our Christian life. We expect that. We expect in the reading and preaching of the Word. We expect in the prayers. We expect that in all of these means of grace, baptism, the Lord's Supper, that God will communicate Christ to us and that we will be built up in our faith. We expect that in family worship. If we're not doing family worship, we're denying the members of our family the spiritual life of of the Word of God. And, And privately the same could be said. Now, why is it that we know all these things but we don't draw near? Because I've met many professing Christians, many true Christians, I'm quite persuaded, true Christians who would agree with all these things But time and time again, they neglect their Bible and they don't spend time in prayer. And they don't have family worship, but maybe a couple times a week. Why is that? Why is it that we can affirm these things in our minds? Why is it? Well, I would argue that it's a lack of faith. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 tells us that we're to cleanse ourselves from sin since we have these promises. Since we have these promises. And I think James is saying something very similar here. Uh, He's saying, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Isn't that a powerful statement? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Do you believe that promise? I know you believe that you should be drawing near to God. If you're a professing Christian, if you're a Christian, you know that. I know that you believe that. But do you believe that God, who cannot lie, who is immutable, unchangeable, who is without repentance on these kinds of things, do you believe that God has promised that if you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you? At the end of the day, if you believe that, and if you desire to be near to God, you're going to act on it. So it's either one of two things. Either you don't really deep down believe that opening that Bible is a window into direct fellowship with God, and that bowing before the Lord in prayer exalts you to the throne room of grace in the presence of God in intimate fellowship. Either you don't believe that drawing near to Him uh, means that He'll draw near to you, or you don't want to be near Him. You just don't. You believe that you would experience that, but there's just too many other pressing things. Uh, need Need to fix up the house. Need to go do something with the car. Need to plan a vacation. Need to do this, need to do this with my education, with my career, with this, that, and the other. Whatever it is. Need to scroll endlessly on on some kind of device. It's one of the two. So, So identify which one it is. Hopefully not both. But identify which one it is. Largely, I think it's unbelief. I don't think we really believe that if we open our Bible and pray on a consistent basis, that we will develop a more and more intimate relationship with God. 
that we will that we will be near to him that we will be walking with him and those that do spend that time daily in the word and prayer okay those and and I don't say this in a in a condescending way those of us that do that and there are many of them here those of us that do make that time spend that time okay and not to say it might be easier or harder for some people I'm not saying it in a condescending way I'm not trying to do that but those of us that do put in that time we know that it's true we know that our nearness to God is increased we know that it increases proportionally based on the time that we put in, the quality, the prioritization of these things. When we dive into the Word, when we're in the Word, when we specifically say, I'm not going to do this other thing that I normally do. I'm going to get in the Word. And I'm going to come before the Lord and pray. And when I'm in a tough spot, I'm just going to go and cry out to the Lord. When we do that, God comes near. God comes near. I'm not sure how else to explain it other than to say this is a promise and He fulfills that promise time and time again. We could go to other portions of the Bible where that promise is repeated, where He says He'll make His home with us, He'll draw near to us, but it's, it's enough. He says, you draw near to me and I absolutely, positively will draw near to you. I'd like to think that we all want that. So do you believe that? If you do, act on it. And God will open the windows of heaven. I'm not saying you're going to be uh, experience some kind of uh, mystical revival experience from the outset. But I'm saying those of us that do this, the more time you put in, the more consistent, the more you prioritize it, the more God increasingly draws near and you wouldn't trade it for anything else. The best argument for daily time in the Word and prayer is just to be in the Word and prayer daily. And when you are, God makes it worth your while. Why would we expect anything else? Of course He's going to make it worth your while to draw near to Him. And when He does that, my friends, you will experience a foretaste of heaven. And you will be so filled with the love of God with assurance of your salvation, so filled with the experience of Jesus Christ, you will be so satisfied. I'm not talking about perfectionism. not saying you you won't ever sin, but I'm saying you will be so filled with the fullness of God that sin will have a much taller task in breaking in to your life. Sin will find it much more difficult. The lusts inside your your heart, the remaining sin, will be chained up in a sense, restrained to a large extent. When God becomes big, those things begin to shrivel. And the flesh becomes less less of an influence. And your spiritual new man or new woman in Christ will thrive and be victorious. And you'll find again that those lusts and appetites that held you in bondage, as, as your, your spiritual walk with Christ grows, as your joy in the Lord grows, those things will begin to shrivel. Not saying perfection, but growth in your godliness and the shriveling, the gradual decay of remaining sin in your life. That is what James is exhorting us to do. And it comes down to this do you believe it? 
And if you profess to have faith in those promises, faith shows itself in works. I'll end with a reminder from James chapter 1, which is always a good reminder for us. In James chapter 1, where he says, verse 22 and following, just listen to this as we conclude the sermon. For if anyone is... Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So if this message has in any way helped you to understand your situation, helped you to identify what God's calling you to do, to take steps, to enjoy His grace and His blessing to a greater extent, Don't go away and immediately forget all of those things, all of the conviction of sin that you experienced under these passages, all of the practical direction, all of the cause and effect of God's covenant promises and and drawing near. Don't forget those things. He says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So don't forget, continue. Continue and be a doer of the work. Be a doer of the work. You're not working to earn your salvation, but work out your own salvation. Follow these gracious gospel instructions. Be a doer of the work. Seek the Lord diligently. Draw near to the Lord. And you will be blessed in those things and He will draw near to you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are by nature proud and self-sufficient, self-reliant, leaning on our own understanding. We pray that You would give us true humility, true faith in Your promises, true delight in the blessedness that is offered and set before us here today of being near to the Lord. That is what we desire. Help us to desire it more. And help us to follow the simple instructions You've given us. And to keep in mind that, as Augustine said, give what You command and command what You will. We know that You give more grace, even the grace to follow these instructions. So Lord, we pray, make us not forgetful hearers, but those who are continuing in the word we've heard to do it and to be blessed in it. For Jesus' sake, amen.